Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Aaron Warbritton, who is producer of MidwestWhitetail.com's uh, weekly webisodes. He's also a host of uh, the podcast there at MidwestWhitetail.com. I believe you and Bill both have your own podcast, right, Aaron? Uh, yeah, Jay, we sure do. It's it's on. It's actually on our sister website. It's on WhitetailWatch.com, which is a sister of Midwest Whitetail. You get to the Whitetail Watch page through the MidwestWhitetail.com site. But um, I have a podcast there where I interview guests all about whitetail hunting, and then Bill has his own podcast on there as well. You know, I I became a fan of uh, Midwest Whitetail, uh, of Bill's show. Uh, I want to say it was 2009. Um, the, the, The years are kind of fuzzy, but whatever the year was when he was chasing a couple of those big giant bucks and and um, I know you've been working with Bill for many years, and you're the host of uh, the, the the Spring Thunder series, and uh, do a great job with that in the spring. And you're a turkey nut. You came down and hunted Gould's turkey with me uh, last year in Mexico, and we had a great time. And uh, Aaron is an unbelievable turkey caller. Um, but the you know the other thing is you're a whitetail nut. Uh, Aaron, why don't you take a second here? and tell the listeners a little bit about you, where you grew up, uh, what you grew up, uh, you know, loving to do, and uh, where you went to school, and a little bit of your background. Sure, Jay. I, uh, I grew up in northeast Missouri around the Mark Twain Lake area in a real rural community called Paris. Um, it's a town with about 900 people in it, and uh, myself and my family have been hunting, you know, for many generations. So basically since birth, I've been in the woods chasing something. And, uh, I got really interested in, um, turkey and deer hunting at an early age. And, uh, we hunted, you know, private public land and, um, uh, a lot of do it yourself type of, of whitetail hunts. when I was real young, um, sort of the school of hard knocks, so to speak. Um, as far as whitetail, and turkey hunting goes lots of public land and uh i've always just loved it and and tried to be out there you know as much as i possibly can all year long so uh i i I grew up down there in paris and then uh, started getting into the whole video thing and the turkey calling stuff when i was 14 or 15 years old so i've been doing the video thing now for for quite some time i'm 29 now and uh, went to college for it, went to school in Springfield, Missouri, down at Ozark Technical College, and got an associate's degree in, in media down there, um, electronic media production, I think is what it was actually called. And then I went on from there and graduated from University of Missouri with a degree in natural resources, recreation management, and moved up to Iowa in 2011 and been working at Midwest Whitetail ever since. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I am not a whitetail hunter. I'm a coos deer hunter, coos whitetail. Uh, I've only hunted uh, whitetails, you know, what I would say eastern whitetails. I actually hunted in Kansas uh, in the sand, uh, the the, kind of the sand, uh, sand hill country out there in Kansas. But uh, the one whitetail hunt that I did go on, I just thoroughly enjoyed. But 
I watch every single Monday. I watch uh, MidwestWhitetail.com's uh, webisode, and I've gotten to know Bill Winky over the years, and him and Drew have come up and gone fishing with me several times, and um, it's been fun to watch the progression of that show, and um, you know the the viewership uh, is amazing. The numbers of of you know whitetail hunters that you and Bill uh, you know educate and inform and entertain on a weekly basis it's it's mind-blowing um so i want to you know commend you guys on the great work that you guys do there at midwestwhitetail.com one of the things that i think is so important and you know bill started doing this i think before anybody and that's really educating and informing the public um, because as you know uh, the public, e even expert hunters, even guys that have done it for a long time, everybody is still starving for information. And uh, you guys have done an excellent job of, you know, really taking it to a whole nother level of where you're putting your stands, why you're putting your stands there, you know, why you're choosing the strategy and the tactic uh, that you're choosing that day. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to ask you about some of the feedback that you've gotten from your viewership as far as, uh, you know, the reward. Obviously, you guys make a living doing it, but the reward truly is in being able to help others, is it not? Oh, absolutely. And uh, really, it's just, it's us documenting and showing everybody all of our mistakes. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what a lot of it is. Um, because as you know, when you're hunting anything, it's a constant learning process. So, uh, as we try new things and, and hit the field every day and then document all that, obviously through your video camera, we're, we're learning and then trying to teach the viewers at the same time, what we're learning from and what lessons we can take away from each circumstance that we go through. And, uh, it is very rewarding. Um, there's really nothing else I'd, I'd rather do. I mean, I've been, like I said, I've been doing this stuff for a, a really long time and not real, uh, I'm not real hip on all the flashy, you know, video type stuff. I like to watch real hunting and uh, I like to talk to real hunters about their situations and, and circumstances that they're in, you know, and, and, uh, we get the chance to do that every day here. So we're very lucky and, uh, um, feel very blessed to be a part of it for sure absolutely well this year um uh i not too well i guess it was just before the gould's turkey hunt uh down in mexico where you guys came down and hunted uh, gould's turkey you had found out that you had uh finally drawn an arizona permit archery elk permit uh and it was going <laughs> to be your first uh archery elk hunt uh, I want to ask you first and foremost, uh, how many years did it take you and, and what was the jubilation on your part knowing that you were going to go elk hunting? Well, first of all, it caught me completely off guard. Um, I had actually just shot a bird, a turkey, on some public land down in Tennessee. Myself and Zach Krzyzewski were down there. And if we would not have just shot that turkey and been up on top of this mountain taking success photos, I don't know that I would have had enough cell reception to have even received the call from Arizona Game and Fish but we were up there taking success photos and the Game and Fish called me and I actually thought it was my hunting buddy Drew Yarkowski you know him 
Um, I thought it was him playing a prank on me at first. <laughs> and they what said, happened? They they called me and they said, "Hi, Aaron, you've uh, you've drawn an Arizona bull elk tag, and uh, your credit card was declined." Oh. And they're like, "We're going to we're going to issue the tag to uh, another person unless we can get this sorted out immediately." You know, because I had I had just a five hundred dollar limit on that card that I that I gave them. And the tag is like $640 or something like that. So I immediately was scrambling on this mountain in Tennessee. And I was like, okay, I'll call you right back. You know, I hung up the <laughs> phone and I got to thinking, I'm like, what if Drew's playing a prank on me? And uh, he's trying to get my credit card, you know, to buy a bunch of crap or something like that. <laughs> so I was, call some call some nine seven six numbers or something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was really thinking hard about it for a few minutes, and then Zach convinced me. He's like, just give him just just call the bank and straighten it out. You never know. So I I went and called my bank and got some money moved around or whatever, and got the limit taken off the card, and then called them back and. Uh, they said, you know, okay, went through, we're shipping your tag to you right now. You should have it in two weeks. And I was just floored, you know, because, uh, I did not in any way suspect a draw on Arizona elk tag. Uh, I think I had two points yeah. and Drew and I had put in for unit nine. And then our second choice was unit four B and that's the tag that I drew. And, uh, usually it takes, you know, six, seven, eight points for a non-resident to draw that tag. And because of their their um, new rules that they just put in, as you know there, in the last uh, couple of years here with the draw procedure, I was able to get one of the very few random draw non-resident elk tags in that unit. And, you know, I've just, I was just incredibly stoked because that's like my number one thing that I wanted to do since I was a little kid was go archery elk hunting, you know, in the rut. So I was just- That's bored. awesome. That's a great story. I can't wait to talk to you about your hunt uh, here. Um, you know, that, that brings up a couple things. Uh, like you said, you know, at that point when you knew you had drawn a tag, they obviously didn't, I believe they probably didn't tell you what unit you drew. They just told you you had drawn a tag. Yes, that's, that um, is correct. And with the new changes, with 50% of the tags going to non-residents uh, with the most points in the bonus point uh, pass, and then 50% go in a completely random draw, you didn't know whether you had unit 9 or unit 4B. What's interesting about that is, you know, this is the first year where a guy like yourself with, you know, less than the max that it takes for to draw unit 9, you know, could swing for the fence on your first choice and, and you know, put in for a, a, one of those super high quality units and then fall back on a second choice where you could apply for, you know, what I call a mid-tier unit uh, and, and, you know, have a chance actually mathematically at both. It's, it's mind boggling every year. I would hear from people that, uh, you know, would have four points and they would say, I put in for unit nine and unit 10. And I would try and explain to them that, you know, mathematically you had a zero percent and they would say, well, I know the odds aren't good. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. If you didn't have max points for that unit, if you weren't in that max pool, uh, you had zero chance to draw. So I think it's a good change. Um, you know, I, I think it's a good change. It, it, it gives more, uh, chances for non-residents. You know, I, I talked to so many guys that, you know, if they didn't already have 15 or 
16, 18 points, they just felt like they would never catch up. And so they didn't apply. And um, so that's cool that you got the tag. It's great news uh, that you were in the right spot when they called to, um, uh, you know, tell you that to update your credit card. I think that's a good lesson for everyone out there um, to always make sure that the one, the credit card, I've heard of some guys where their credit card expires in the time from when they put in to when they draw. Because so, sometimes it's, you know, three, four, five, six months. It's a, it, you know, it, it can be a, a, a long time. Um, so make sure your, your uh, credit card, um, uh, what, what's the right word, uh, dead, uh, deadline so it doesn't expire is up to date. And make sure that your card allows the limit. I mean, you, you almost, you know, if you'd have been down in the hollow there and not gotten, you know, the message till later, they might have given your tag away. Oh, no doubt. And one another reason that I ran into with my card is it was in the springtime, which, as you know, I'm traveling all over the place in the spring turkey hunting. So I've constantly got these travel alerts on my card. And that's one reason why I've got that low $500 limit on it while I'm traveling. You know, so that was also something that came into play there. I was on the road, so I had that reduced limit. And when they tried to charge it, and it didn't go through. Thankfully, the phone call did, and I was able to get on the phone and get it straightened out. Yeah, good. Let's take a quick break here, and then I want to dive into uh, how your experience was there in 4B. GoHunt.com Insider is by far the most valuable tool a Western hunter could give themselves. GoHunt.com Insider are the industry leaders and number one source for Western hunting for a lot of reasons. GoHunt.com Insider have changed the game for how hunts and hunting information are found. Within a matter of minutes using filtering 2.0, you'll be able to filter by state, species, residency, odds of drawing a tag, specific hunting dates, and harvest success percentages to find the hunts that fit exactly what you're looking for. If you are a guy that applies across the West or just in your home state but want to find some new opportunity... There's no better way to do it than using GoHunt.com Insider. As an exclusive offer to my listeners, if you sign up for a GoHunt.com Insider membership for $149 a year and use the promo code JSCOTT at checkout, you'll receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. Head on over to GoHunt.com forward slash Insider and get yourself the most valuable membership a hunter could have. Okay, Aaron, so you'd drawn the tag, uh, uh, you and, and, and Drew was going to come out with you. I believe you drew, did you draw the tag by yourself? Uh, yes, I did. Drew and I both put in at the same time, and uh, we actually put in for the same units. But yes, I, we applied separately. Yeah, and so you found out you were going to draw, and at that point in time, you know, what did you start doing or as the summer progressed, uh, you know, what were you doing to prepare for your elk hunt? <laughs> well, you'll like this. I started listening to a lot of Jay Scott Outdoors podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that's a good plug. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did and learned a lot from them. Um, I looked online on a lot of forums and stuff, kind of, uh, because there, logistically there's a lot that goes into one of these hunts um and and learned a lot through um, your youtube videos and like steve chapels and um the primos guys gave me some guidance 
But the first thing I started to do was get all of our camping gear and uh, our trip planned out um, as far as travel goes. And because I, I had to find somebody that could come along and film. And then Drew and I had to get our work schedules figured out so that we could be gone for the whole hunt. And I think that was a big key to our success out there was we were able to take off and, and hunt the entire hunt. Um, but that's what I started doing was just kind of going through, you know, your elk camp checklist and um, buying all of the DIY gear that we were going to need. I ended up buying an enclosed trailer to take out there. And that's what we kept all of our coolers and our camping gear and that sort of thing in. And then um, got plenty of gear from Cabela's to take out as far as camping gear goes. So that all that really took quite a while. And then obviously I wanted to learn how to elk call in some form or fashion. So I was bugging guys like you and uh, Bo and Casey Brooks about what kind of elk calls I need to be getting and what kind of sounds I need to be making and learned a lot through these podcasts actually um, throughout the summer. So it was just every day blowing elk calls in the office here. <laughs> Aaron, um, as far as turkey calling, I mean, I, I consider you one of the best turkey callers I've ever heard myself. Um, how was the transition from blowing a turkey call to blowing an elk call? Wondering if the, you know, the position of the call in your mouth was the same. Uh, you know, did, did you pick it up right away? Uh, you know, maybe what some of the hurdles were um, in, in, you know, basically trying to learn how to elk call on a diaphragm after being such a pro proficient turkey caller. Well, I appreciate the kind words on the, the turkey calling, Jay. Um, uh, I've been doing that since I was a little kid, so I was pretty comfortable with uh, the diaphragm calls. But blowing the elk call was a, was a little bit different, and I... I, I picked up one of the diaphragms first and I was able to, to make some decent cow sounds on it after I probably practiced for about 30 minutes every day for a month or so. And I would actually listen to some of your live recordings and stuff on YouTube of cows and then record myself calling, you know, in the house and then outside and then go back and compare the two. And I was getting some decent sounds out of that, but I didn't really start getting ultra realistic until I started using an open read and I think I got the I think I got the tone and the sound um somewhat down throughout all my practice this summer the thing that that I didn't anticipate as much as you know knowing when to call and, and all that woodsmanship type stuff that you've got to know and obviously I'm a novice elk hunter this is my first elk hunt so I didn't have any idea of really when to call to him and how much to call or anything but I uh, I started experimenting with the open read calls and I I felt like I was sounding more realistic on those than I was the mouth diaphragms. But as far as blowing the call goes, there's really not much difference in the mechanics that I've blown an elk call versus a turkey call, other than uh, I'm just trying to get that one note out. You know, with the turkey, you're trying to make seven, eight, ten notes in um, short, choppy bursts with your air pressure and with that with that elk call you're really just trying to really drop that jaw and drop that tongue in to get that nasally back end and that's what I struggled with the most but I think I did okay I just uh I didn't call in too many elk clouds out there you know but um definitely practiced a lot 
So what open read call, or did you use several, what open read call did you find worked best for, for your mouth and, and your situation? Well, Drew and I both picked up several of them. I, uh, I had the trophy wife, um, and then Drew had the matriarch. And uh, what is that company's name again? Well, it's... It's Steve Chappell's design, I believe, Rocky Mountain Game Calls, I yeah, think is the name of it. I think that's what, right. And then I also was um, using a Primo's Hyperlip. Single or double? Single. Single, okay. Yep. And, and did you feel, why did you feel like the open read made more you know, more authentic sounds. Did you just feel like the, the nature of the call? I mean, I have my own ideas, but I'm curious your opinion on when you would play back your tapes, why did you feel like that was better? Well, when I was blowing that trophy wife, I would, I would record myself like on the porch in the yard or whatever from a distance on my phone. I'd record some off of, you know, a handful of the diaphragm calls that I had. And I originally actually started practicing with the diaphragm calls on just some of my old turkey calls. I just tore the top reeds off of them and made them single reeds, and that's how I started practicing the mechanics of a cow elk call with the diaphragm. And then I I got a bunch more diaphragms. You know, I bought several, and then Bo Brooks sent me a bunch of his as well. And I was I was practicing on all those different models, and that's what I would do is go out in the yard, and I would just practice on three or four diaphragms, and then I'd practice on that open read and then play it back and compare it to some of that live elk footage that I mentioned earlier. And it just seemed like for my, for myself anyway, that I could get the most realistic sound out of those, out of those open reads. Nice. And um, so as this, as the season was coming and you were prepared with your calling and your gear, um, you guys were prepared to stay the whole time. Uh, you made the, the trek uh, out to Arizona. Um, tell me about that. When you first got to the woods, what, what kind of you, your expectations were as far as what, you know, what were you expecting and how did it differ, uh, as far as, you know, terrain, you know, weather, uh, you know, elk sightings, what you're hearing, how, how did some of that, uh, how, how, how did that go down? Well, the the first thing we did once we got into town was uh, we went out to lunch with Daniel Franco, one of your good friends, and uh, sat down, ate some wings, and visited about elk and, and elk hunting, you know, and he just kind of gave us some great background information on the unit and, um, you know, some good practices while we were out hunting. I was expecting to do more calling while when I was out there because you know me, I'm a turkey hunter. I'm chasing turkeys all over the place and just blowing those calls all the time. Um, but, uh, once I got to talking to him about it, you know, and, and the amount of hunting pressure that was in that unit, you know, he sort of changed my mind a little bit about how much calling we would actually be doing. You know, he's like, you, a, a lot of the folks in there, it gets a fair amount of pressure and these elk are used to hearing, you know, the, the same old thing over and over again. So you've really got to be selective on the timing of your calls. And since Drew and I didn't really know a ton about that, you know, we were paying a lot of attention to what he was, he was telling us. There was more hunting pressure in there the first weekend than I figured there would be. Um, 
it's a pretty big unit that we were in. But when we got there, Franco told us, he said, you know, this first weekend, the elk are probably going to go quiet. They're going to shut up and not say much because of the amount of pressure. And then if you can stay through the week, things will progressively get better. And I just expected things just to be on fire when we got there, you know, and really the first day or two they were that we were scouting. And then the first day of season, they bugled decently well. I mean, we almost got, we got close to getting one the first day, but that was the one thing that, uh, definitely differed from my expectations as I figured we were just kind of pile in there and start hearing elk everywhere. I did not know how much hunting pressure would affect elk like that. Like if, if uh, a truck or, or, well, not necessarily a truck, but like a side-by-side would pull up on the road, obviously you've seen and heard this before. Those elk would just shut up, you know, and they might be a mile from that road bugling, but they, they would just shut up cold Turkey and would not say a thing for hours and hours on end. So that was definitely a challenge going into it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think what makes some of these mid-tier units, um, you know, I just call them, you know, just kind of average units in Arizona. I think one of the challenges is uh, there's relative, there's more tags in the a lot of these units. And, you know, so you've got quite a bit of competition. You've got quite a bit of pressure. And, you know, these elk, uh, you know, especially these cows can be, you know, 10, 15 years old or, or even older. And they sense that pressure just like most all animals do. And they go, you know, all summer and, and, and not have a lot of people. Well, there's campers and such around, but then all of a sudden, boom, one day everybody shows up and there's just elk calls going off, you know, on every road. And, you know, there's a lot more driving it, you know, an hour before the sun comes up and, you know, they, they, they're smart enough and their sense of, you know, trying to stay, you know, safe and, and not get killed, uh, takes over and, um, it, it definitely shuts them up. I, I think this year in, in all the podcast recaps that I've done with different guys, you know, the general consensus is September 9th is a pretty early start date. Um, you know, some years we start as late as, you know, 15th, 16th of, of September and, that that you know that four five six extra days means a lot I think as far as the progression of the rut and I think sometimes on these early hunts uh, or or when they start early I think you almost get your elk just kind of wanting to get bugling and wanting to get rutting around and then the pressure hits and it kind of can shut them down and then sometimes it takes them a week or so to kind of get back into it whereas when it starts on the fifteenth or you know a later date. I think sometimes they're already worked up enough that 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 initial pressure it doesn't take as long you know maybe it's a day or two and then they get right back after it where you know if it starts on the ninth it could take them you know a week to get back after it. Um, you say you heard uh, bugles and such before the season, so you had to be pretty fired up, uh, you know, thinking it was just going to be wide open. Oh yeah, we uh, we spent a day and a half scouting before the season. And uh, both of those first nights, really before the pressure poured in, because, see, the 9th of September would have been a Friday. Is that Was that correct? I'm pretty sure yeah. that it was. Yep. Yep. Um, so we were there scouting Wednesday evening and then all day Thursday. And uh, we spotted, glassed, and heard several bulls on Thursday and uh, even had, you know, a decent little plan 
going into opening day uh as far as you know we we'd found some elk and then we and we'd even found some bulls that we were that we would have uh you know gladly shot that we were going to go after on Friday and then Thursday night you know night before the opener we're in camp and we've just got bulls bugling around camp you know not a lot but three or four of them bugling most of the night so it was uh you know, like a kid on Christmas morning, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. I mean, we didn't hardly get any sleep. Me and Mike in the in the tent that night because we we're just sitting there listening to elk. But uh, we were super amped up going into opening day, and and we had a decent plan and almost almost got it done opening day. What were your expectations as far as what were you going to shoot? Um, you know, were you looking for branch antlered? Were you looking for, you know, three hundred inch bull? Did you have any like set quote unquote standards or, or expectations of what you would shoot opening morning? Well, I'm, uh, myself, I weighed, I weighed everyone's opinion in the group. Um, as far as, um, as far as the quality of bulls that we were wanting to chase myself, I would have shot just about anything that presented me with a real good quality opportunity. And that's what I was telling the guys going into it. Like we're filming this stuff. I've never killed a bull elk before. If I get a nice five, six-point bull in there of any size within 30 yards that's going to give me a good, legit chance of harvesting him, I was going to take it. Now, Drew, on the other hand, who's been on a few elk hunts, you know, he's he keeps telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, there's there's opportunity for some decent bulls in here if we just work at it. And uh, so I was sort of torn between the two. I'm I'm more of an opportunist and, and he was, uh, looking more for uh trophy elk, but it actually ended up working out really good. Um, uh, because we were, we were both able to sort of put our heads together with Mike and, and come up with a decent game plan. But I talked to Franco going into it and he said, you know, in that, in that particular unit, a 300 inch bull was a good quality bull and to not pass up a chance at one. And, uh, so I was kind of thinking, you know, if I get a chance at a 270, 280 plus bull, I better, I better shoot him. And uh, that was sort of my goal going into it. Sounds good. Let's take another quick break here and then uh, tell me how kind of the opening day went. Real game calls featuring the elk reel. Real Game Calls makes innovative, realistic, and easy-to-master calls using their proprietary, revolutionary design. They are located and manufactured in Gypsum, Colorado. Their calls were designed and battle-tested on some of the hardest-hunted terrain on Earth. Check out ElkReel.com. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a 20% discount on all purchases. Go to www.ElkReel.com. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any products. 
Okay, um, describe for me open or waking up open in day. You probably never went to sleep, but uh, <laughs> uh, how that I saw on the video how it looked like you had a pretty good encounter on opening morning. Kind of walk me through all of your feelings and how that went down and your strategy there. Well, the night before, I was still getting over a flu that I caught on the way out there. But um, uh, the night before, uh, Drew had went out and glassed two decent bulls. Each one of them had four or five cows with them up in, uh, well, it wouldn't be the northern portion of the unit, but the, but um, about 15, 20 miles north of our camp. And uh, he didn't see any other hunters in there, anybody scouting, spotted those bulls, so we decided to go in after those opening morning. We got up early and we got out there right about the, the time, oh, we, we got out there about 30 minutes before legal shooting light and heard um, two bulls bugling as soon as we got out of the truck. So we, we trekked back in there and ended up, uh, we, we ended up on one bull and, and got decently close to him, but he ended up uh, being just across the canyon from us, you know, a couple hundred yards away. We were able to film him and watch him for a while and uh, had another bull bugling back behind us, but we didn't have the right wind to really go after him. So we just spent that first morning sort of watching these elk and uh, it was going pretty well until we had a, a truck with a couple hunters come in um, from the other side of the canyon. And when they did, that elk that we'd been watching all morning, you know, he was a nice bull, a 270, 280 type bull with a couple of cows. He completely shut up when those hunters popped up over there. And then that was pretty much the uh, the end of the morning. But we we got a good bearing on on a bull bugling once we got back to the truck. He bugled a couple of times from his bed. And we knew exactly where he was at um, and and then came up with a game plan for that evening set. And how did that progress? We uh, we went in and uh, I actually uh, had the Onyx Maps chip and my GPS and, and several uh, maps of the unit that we'd been looking at. We found where that bull was, was bedded at and then we found the nearest water source to him which was uh, one of those uh, guzzlers. And Daniel had told us about those and how we needed to be concentrating on those, you know, and especially in the evenings early in the season like that. So we drew, I and Mike went up to that water guzzler early that afternoon, one, two o'clock, and uh, checked for fresh tracks and stuff. There was all kind of fresh sign around it, but the wind had switched in the middle of the day, so we couldn't actually hunt directly over the guzzler. So we backed off probably a half mile away and then uh, the bull started firing up you know a couple hours before dark and sure enough we could hear him heading towards that water and we just hooked around him got the wind in our favor waited for him to get to the guzzler and then we slid in there on him got within oh 60 70 yards of the, of the edge of that guzzler we could see you know legs moving up through the the pinion juniper there and we could hear him carrying on up there and then drew dropped back probably 50 60 yards behind us and uh just called one time on i believe it was the matriarch call he called one time on that and the bull answered and then he came straight in the problem was is that i should have uh i should have set up a little bit off wind the uh the wind that we set up on that bull was the wind was coming straight from the the elk to us so instead of him cupping around and cutting that wind, like I hear you guys talk about all the time, that bull came straight in. 
and he ended up coming around. I, I got full draw on him, and he came around a bush at about eight yards and pinned me and Mike as soon as he did. And he looked straight over there at us, and I was at full draw, but he was quartering to me, and all I had was his shoulder, you know, and I didn't didn't feel comfortable taking the shot. He didn't expose any of his vitals behind the shoulder to me, and he was quartering it at such a funny angle that I didn't think I could get one in the front, so I just didn't take the shot, and the bull saw us and bolted, but it got uh, got our adrenaline pumping for sure that first day, having a big bull come in bugling like that to eight yards. That was I was pretty it's excited pretty cool to get footage. that close. It's pretty cool footage. Uh, I enjoyed watching that. So what you're telling me is Drew was directly behind you and the bull, and the bull cut directly to the call, and the caller, uh, it, it just worked out that the caller was, you were directly between the caller and the bull instead of being one side or the other, and he cut directly to the call instead of trying to circle around and kind of come with the wind at an angle. Yes, and I think if we had got up there um, with that wind sort of at a cross to us, then I would have then I would have gotten you know on the downwind side of that little circle there, and I I think the bull may have may have tried to circle downwind of that call, and I might have been in a better position for a shot, but because the wind was coming straight from the elk to us and to the caller, he just came straight in, you know. Yeah. And, in uh, other words, it sharpened your angle. If you're off to one side or the other, or if the caller is to the one side or the other, it opened, in my opinion, it opens your angle up. Oh yeah. Uh, from the from that the usual you know the approach that the elk's going to take. But uh, you know, it, I had several situations like that myself this year where called and the bull comes just straight in, and then you've got nothing. You're you, you know you've got literally you know no shot. And, um, that, that's tough to take. So, and then I would assume the doldrum of the hunt and the pressure, and it kind of got tough for a while. Uh, tell me how the next, uh, sequence of events kind of played out and then into how, how you got your bull and how that all broke down. Well, um, Franco pretty much hit the nail on the head when we sat down and ate lunch and he said, Opening day is probably going to be good, kind of like you were just talking about a few minutes ago. Um, the elk are going to be bugling. They're going to be sort of acting like they're ready to go, and opening day will be good. But then once the first weekend gets here, he said they're probably going to shut down completely, and you're just going to have to fight the pressure for a few days, and then they'll start, you know, getting back with it midweek of that first week, you know, around the, the 12th, 13th, 14th of the month. And, I mean, he hit the nail on the head right there. Uh, that first weekend, we didn't hardly hear a bugle. We didn't hardly see an elk. Um, so, going into it, though, we we didn't really uh, we didn't really hunt very hard that Saturday and Sunday. We did opening day, like Daniel had said. But then, after we had that encounter and we saw all the people coming in and the elk shutting up, we just spent the majority of the weekend scouting water tanks. And uh, we would just look on the GPS and the map, find guzzlers and, and tanks around the unit, and we would just go from one to the next. And I wish we'd have had a bunch of trail cameras with us, but we didn't. So what we were doing, each time we'd come up to a tank that had fresh tracks around it, we would just stomp in those tracks, and that was Drew's idea. He said, you know, we'll just we'll make these little track catchers around these these guzzlers and these water tanks. Or we'll either, you know, we'll brush the dirt aside so we can come back in tomorrow and check for fresh tracks, or we'll actually stomp in the 
the bull tracks around the tanks. So that's basically what we did the entire first weekend while all the pressure was there, was went around and checked all the water holes and marked them, you know, the ones that were getting hit the most. And then going into the first week of the hunt, things started progressively getting a little bit better every day. You know, we had some, some on and off days in there, and it was really neat getting to explore different areas of the unit throughout that first week because we just sort of bounced around from different pockets of elk to different pockets of elk and we did we got messed up a few times by other hunters but uh, uh, most situations we were going in areas where there was fewer elk but also fewer hunters you know towards the southern tip of the unit was the higher country and there was way more elk down there way more elk bugling but there was just piles of hunters in there so we we headed north into the flatter stuff where you know you'd be more apt to just finding one or two bulls and a couple of cows up there but you might only have one other hunter on the that little pocket of elk and those proved to be much easier to deal with than um, the elk down in the in the heavy pines and in the higher country to the south of us how about when how about when news of opening night when uh Parker Darson shoots a just a whopper where you just Oh my gosh. We talked to Parker and Dar uh, midday, first day. They got messed up that morning and we're headed back to take a nap, you know, and we were telling them about our plans to go in and, and get on this other bull. Like it sounded like they had a really rough morning and and uh we were still pretty optimistic for them, you know, because Dar's Dar's got his stuff together when it comes to this elk cutting. Um, there's no doubt about that. We learned a bunch from him while he was there. And uh, we got a text from Dar in the middle of the night with a picture of that bull. And we were just floored. Like, holy cow. That thing it's is a heck a- of a bull. It's, it's, I got to see it when I got home. And big fronts, heavy bull. Uh, kind of peters out in the back. But just a, just a big old bull. Especially for that unit. I mean, just a, just a true monster for that unit so oh, that's a monster bull for that unit yeah pretty cool to see that so tell me about uh what day you killed and how your kill sequence uh how that worked out well um being a group of novice elk hunters it was definitely showing through the progression of the hunt we would we would chase bulls in the morning you know and we got really close most mornings to bugling bulls um, even some that we were wanting to shoot, but, um, just not having very, very much experience with calling and moving around on elk like that. I mean, we, we always seem to be, you know, 30 seconds behind or 15 seconds behind or 50 yards behind or wherever, you know, and uh, I think we learned a lot through all those experiences, but in the evenings, like I mentioned before, we were targeting water and we, we had several close calls on water throughout the week. Um, with bulls coming in either right at last light or one evening we had, uh, you know, a, a smaller, younger bull come right into the water and, you know, it would have been a perfect shot, but we just wanted something that was a little bit more mature. So we let him walk. And then on the ninth day, we almost shot one that morning. We got close to him, but he cut our wind at about 55, 60 yards and didn't quite offer me a good shot. So didn't take it. And then in the middle of the ninth day, we went back to a water tank that we've been watching every day. Um, Drew had been going in there and, you know, stomping the tracks out 
and checking for fresh ones every day. And we went in there and there was two fresh wallows in that water hole. Um, and it was in the, the northern end of that unit, like I said before. It was up in the flatter stuff where there wasn't too many people going. We didn't see many fresh side-by-side for their tracks on the road going in. And there was nothing but fresh bull tracks and wallows in that, that um, water tank that had just been signed, you know, that was just laid down within the last couple of days. So we split up that night. Drew went and glassed um, in an area where we'd been watching a, a pretty good bull that Dar actually had trail camera pictures of earlier in the hunt. Is a really nice 6 by 6 350-ish bull. He was going over there to try to find him. And then Mike and I decided just to set that water tank like we've been doing. And then uh, about an hour before dark, I heard a bull bugle straight up the hill above us in his bed. And he did that two or three more times. And then the I was getting real nervous as it was nearing dark. You know, we had about 30 minutes of shooting light left. And the wind was trying to kind of push up that hill. But about that time, it died. And I don't know if it was thermals pulling down to that water or thermals coming off the hill or what, but I started dropping wind checkers and they were going straight down to that water, you know, away from that elk. So we were, we were optimistic he was going to come in there. And eventually he did. He came down the hill and we could hear him walking just 10 yards right past us. Um, Mike was able to get on him when he came into the water hole with the camera. And, you know, I was shaking like a leaf having that, big bull and they're that close and he he came in just like an old whitetail buck would to one of those situations just so slow and cautious and we'd been watching younger elk you know come into that water in the evenings they would just run in there in the evenings wouldn't even think twice about it but this bull he just came in step by step he even went to the dam of that water tank before coming down to drink and he looked up and down the drainage a couple of times before he finally decided to come down there and drink it was so still that i couldn't get drawn on him while he was drinking because he was facing kind of towards us i just waited until he he lifted his head up when he did he turned it away from me and i come to full draw but the cable squeaked a little bit on my bow and he heard it and he jerked that head around but uh, i was lucky enough to to get the arrow off in time and and hit him right behind the shoulder and he just went you know, 150 yards up the hill and piled up. We went to town and got Drew and Daniel and the guys and had a big group come out there and, and help us track him and find him. And I was just ecstatic, you know. I mean, words couldn't even describe what I was going through at that time. You know, us as a group being there for 10, 11 days and, and finally killing one. I did not think that we were going to get a crack at one, especially a, a nice big six by six like that i was very lucky very very lucky to even get a chance at at a nice bull having had as little experience as we do elk hunting you know so we were just that's awesome so are you hooked now oh my are you kidding (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what i'm gonna do Uh, i'm gonna have to go elk hunting every year from now on i don't know i may have to uh, sell all my vehicles and my possessions to do so but (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the most incredible things I've ever done. That's neat. That's that's a great story. I'm glad you uh, were able to get one. Have you had any of the meat yet? Any of the back straps uh, from your bull? Oh, I've been eating him every day. <laughs> How is it? It's awesome. It's unbelievably. It's first elk I've ever ate, and it's unbelievably good. 
we're actually how does it ready compare to, to your whitetails? Um, it's uh, not as gamey as whitetail. Um, it's also a little more tender. It has a different taste, sort of all around, as far as the whitetails in our part of the country, anyway, go. I still kind like of a sweet, like sweet taste, isn't it? Yes, it is. I still like eating whitetail, but man, that elk is hard to beat. For sure. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you had a good experience. And it sounds like, you know, if you would have been done on that first day, maybe you wouldn't have got to enjoy some of the heartache that comes with elk hunting because I know you're used to plenty of heartache with the Midwest whitetails and um, with, with, you know, the the turkeys you chase. So uh, maybe shooting one that first night, uh, you know, would have been a curse uh, instead of a blessing just to, you know, be able to enjoy a good long hunt and I'm sure you were probably getting puckered down towards the end and really wanting to get one, though. Yeah, I was excited to to get a chance at one, or but like you said, I'm definitely glad that it played out the way that it did because we learned a lot about elk hunting in that in that nine days. You know, whereas if we and to be honest, we called in the only bull that we truly called in was that one on the very first day. Mm-hmm. and I was looking at Drew after that happened. I was like, this isn't, you know, there's no way it's this easy. And Drew's like, no, we got really, really lucky with that bull. And like, we even messed it up because we didn't get the right shot, you know? And then yeah. for the next nine days, we, we tried and, and failed over and over again at, at calling them in. So it it worked out great. That's awesome. Let's take another quick break here. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any products. Okay, so you're hooked for life, and uh, Bill's going to have to just know that you're going to be gone every September, I guess, chasing <laughs> bulls. You'll you'll become an addict like you are on the whitetails and the turkeys. Um, I, I saw in the episode this morning, you're chasing a couple bucks on uh, public land there, and, and you um, had some tree stands set up, and you actually had to go take the tree stands down while the deer were bedded in the, the little meadow um and crawl across to get in some trees that were closer to the bucks and dang if those bucks didn't get up uh you you got the tree stand reset and uh uh got to got to see those bucks tell me a little bit about that well uh i've been scouting that area for the last couple of years it's a spot that we've hunted for several years now and uh there's there's a handful of big deer in there that i would you know love to shoot so we piled into that bedding area and found them on our first sit but uh the unique thing with this this group of bucks that's in there right now is that they're bedding in a very specific spot and it's only about a 20 yard by 20 yard square that's in the middle of this field and i have no idea for the life of me why they're bedding there but when they're bedded there, they're usually there on westerly winds of some description. And when they stand up, they don't move very far during daylight. They just sit out there in that field and browse. So we tried getting in tighter to them with the stand we'd already hung. Our original setup was about 300, 350 yards from them. 
and we closed in. We got about as close as I thought we could get without spooking the deer, and we got 100 yards from them in their beds, and sure enough, they stood up right out there where I thought they would be at. They just did not work in our direction, which I'd watched them the two out of the previous three nights walk right past that tree stand location that I chose. But that night, for whatever the reason, they didn't want to come by. I had a nice two- or three-year-old buck walk right under the stand, but those two old bucks that I was wanting to, to kill didn't. So I'm trying to come up with a game plan for for getting back on those bucks this week. With uh, We should have a little bit of a cool front coming in tomorrow where I'm going to get more of those westerly winds, and I can maybe get back in there and, and try to get a crack at one. Today's uh, October 17th. Um... Give me a breakdown on how, how you foresee conditions there uh, uh, in your home state uh, as far as uh, is everything going as normal? Is, is there anything abnormal? And then tell me what you're noticing. Uh, you know, is there any sign of rut, pre-rut? What stage are you guys at? And, uh, you know, just kind of your forecast here. Well, it's been unseasonably warm so far, but it is that time of the month right now where if you get any kind of a temperature drop, uh, for instance, today it's 86 degrees and hot and humid, but tomorrow it's supposed to be a high of 68 with northwest winds, and that humidity is going to drop off through the night. So tomorrow evening the, the bucks should be on their feet um, moving somewhere, and that's what we're targeting basically from now up until around Halloween is just those cold fronts and um, evening hunts towards close to bedding areas that we found. Um, not getting real aggressive yet. The bucks are starting to do a little bit of scraping and rubbing and that sort of thing. But it's it's not really hitting full stride. So we've got another couple weeks before before they get they start getting amped up and ruddy you know and in the meantime we'll just be hunting them close to those beds and those scrapes and um, targeting these cold fronts it's just been so gum warm that they that they haven't been moving much like i said these bucks that i've been watching they've been getting up out of their bed an hour before dark but they're not making it but 80 100 yards from those beds in daylight so it's kind of real uh, nocturnal yeah they're they're pretty nocturnal i mean I don't. I, I hate using that word because nocturnal makes them seem like you know they don't even get up and move during the day, and they are. You know they're they're getting up, and they even they've even started feeding on some nights a good hour and a half before dark, but they just happen to be bedding in the spot where they're feeding. So they're just getting up and they're starting to browse and carry on, and they're just acting like old bucks do. Um, old bulls do the same thing, as you know. They're just lethargic. They just don't, until they're rutting, when um, those does come into heat, they just don't um, move anywhere real fast. It's just slow going for the most part until those does start coming into heat. How bad is EHD um, hit your area? I know Bill, all around where he hunts there on his farm and stuff, you know, he had just unbelievable bucks uh, for years. Uh, and then EHD, can you... First, explain what EHD is and how hard has it hit and what stage of a recovery do you think you guys are in right now? Well, EHD is a natural disease 
that's caused by a uh, small midge that gets up in um, in the deer's nose and and um, nasal passage. Um, it, it occurs most times in a drought year. And what this little midge does that gives that the deer that disease is it those midges grow in um, just muddy, mucky type water, and that occurs many times in a drought year. So, for instance, where we're at. When the creeks and stuff start droughting and the water goes out of them and you've, you've just got nothing but that mud down in there that those deer are trying to find water in and they're drinking out of, that's when they can run into the EHD problem. It It is a funny disease, though, because it will impact one property really badly and kill a lot of the bucks on it and does. And then you go two miles over to another property that's got a creek running through it and uh, not a single deer has got the, the disease, you know, so it's, it's not contagious or anything. You know, one deer can't get it from another, at least to my knowledge, it's not, I could be wrong on that, but uh, that's what happened with Bill's farm a few years ago on his property. You know, we, we found all kinds of, of deer dead of EHD and then just up the road a few miles away on a similar property with a creek running through the middle of it, there wasn't hardly anything. So it's, it just kind of, uh, it, it chooses these specific little locations and then, then hurts the deer population in those localized areas. But it's, it's not necessarily something that happens, you know, widespread. Gotcha. Gotcha. What, um, if you had to pick a seven, I know you get to ask this question all the time, but if you had to pick a seven day window to hunt in Iowa, um for the best movement and rutting activity like the best seven days you only had seven days to hunt what seven days would it be Aaron? well my answer is probably going to differ from lots of folks because i hunt public land um bill's i would say bill would say his his best seven days would be somewhere between the first of november and the 10th of november any seven day combination there but on public land that seems to be when the most hunting pressure occurs uh i really don't even hunt very hard from uh the first november through the fifth last year i think i might have hunted one time in those five days just because we get a lot of non-resident hunters here and they show up with with their week-long or their two-week vacation on the 31st or the first of november and then stay through the 10th or 11th and then they either kill one or they leave because they're out of vacation days. When I see the best hunting in the rut here on public land is usually between the 10th and the 25th. Now, I know that's not seven days, um, and, and it's what most people would call the lockdown phase of the rut, but I, I just see better midday buck movement during those days. Um, if, I had to, if I had to pick, I would almost pick the like 15th through the 22nd um, is as far as the best days go. Cause that's when they're, that's when they're still amped up for the rut, you know, but a lot of those does red and that's when the mature old bucks, you know, those five-year-old plus bucks, they tend to get up and move more, especially during the day. Cause they're looking for those last few available does. Most of those bucks are dominant bucks. So when the first few available does come in in their area, early November, they don't have to move very far because they're the they're the king, you know. They're the ones that uh, have their pick. So by the first of November, when the first few does start coming in, they already have 
have their does. The only time when they have to move a long distance during daylight is in the middle to later part of the rut in that time frame that I was just referring to. And that seems to be the time when, when I see the most really big deer up and moving. Gotcha. That's great stuff there. Um, well, I, I look forward to seeing how your season progresses uh, and uh, love watching the show and uh, uh, keep up the great work there at MidwestWhitetail.com and keep up the great work on your podcast. I want to give you a chance to uh, let people know how they can follow uh, all the different things that you guys have going on. So would you do that for me? Sure. Um, we, uh, like you just said, MidwestWhitetail.com, that's our bread and butter. It's our semi-live whitetail hunting web show. And we've got, we've got a, uh, our Midwest Whitetail main show, which is where myself, Bill, the other guys in the office, and a few other teams are hunting semi-live each week. But then we also have regional shows. We have an eastern show. We have a, a Great Lakes, a Heartland region, a southeast region, and a Great Plains region as well, where we've got, you know, other teams from those specific areas sending in content every week, sending in fresh hunts. That way we can sort of help the viewer out um, with what the deer are doing in their specific area, not just, you know, Iowa where we're at. So that's our really our bread and butter. And then you can also in the springtime follow us at CabelloSpringThunder.com. We produce a semi-live turkey show there, which operates just like Midwest Whitetail does, except we're dealing with turkeys. And um, as you know, you've submitted lots of awesome stuff to us over the years, Jay. And uh, we definitely appreciate that. But that's that's uh, mainly what we got going on. We also produce uh, some deer hunting content for Cabela's and then a waterfowl show called Cabela's Northern Flight. Cabellas.com. Gotcha. Why is it that uh, right in the heart of our fall season, I I still get myself thinking about turkeys that I screwed up on last <laughs> year and just dis distant gobbles that I think I'm hearing. It's uh, it's one of those things that uh, even right in the heart of what we're doing and what we love in the fall, it seems like spring's always in the back of my mind. And and uh, it was great uh, getting to hunt with. Uh, you and David last year uh, for Goulds in Mexico, and uh, I'm glad you guys. David, that was his, uh, he was able to get his uh, second, or I guess third Goulds, yep. um, but you were able to get your first Goulds, and it was uh, fun hanging out with you guys, and uh, look forward to doing more of that kind of stuff in the future, and just uh, wish you the best of success this fall, and um, hope to see you out maybe at the NWTF uh, convention uh, in February and, um, yeah, just keep up the great work. It was great hearing your success in Arizona and, uh, glad to have another elk hunter out there that's, that's hooked and glad you were able to get a bull and, and, uh, have a great experience and get to enjoy some of that elk meat. So, uh, yeah, just pumped for you, buddy. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. And, and great job on your podcast. I've been listening to all of them and they're, they are um, great, great sources of content, especially for a novice elk hunter like myself. But I really appreciate <laughs> it. Sounds good, buddy. Take care. God bless. Okay. Yeah, you too. We'll see you.